Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR at 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm Karen Green from the University of Melbourne. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR A55 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is now on Twitter. You can find it by searching Rad Philosophy on Twitter and clicking follow to follow us and keep updated with the show. Thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Assistant Professor Amy Harbin about disorientation and moral life. This is part two of a two-part interview. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So what is the moral significance of disorientation? Yeah, I think that I think that disorientations are morally significant in at least two kinds of ways. So one is the way that we were speaking a bit about last time, which is that disorientations, I think, while they're not always good, sometimes they can be dangerous, they can, in some cases, motivate different kinds of moral and political ways of being in ways that are sometimes morally promising, and and that can be surprising how they're promising. So it's one sort of way that they're significant, right? They can motivate these better, different ways of being in the world. The second way that I think that disorientations are morally significant is about how people treat us when we're disoriented or how we treat other people when they are disoriented. So I talk about in the book how, in, in the last chapter of the book, I focus on how we still see disorientations as often in society as these sort of dangerous things to be avoided, when in fact, I want to say they're not only not always dangerous, but also very common, very ordinary, very everyday things that most of us will experience in the course of a lifetime. But the way that we respond to people when they're disoriented can make a big difference to how they experience that disorientation. And here I'm thinking about the work of a teacher of mine, a really brilliant philosopher named Sue Campbell, who wrote in a book about emotions about how the uptake that we get for our expressed 
feelings can make a difference to what those feelings are, right, how we experience them. So if I experience a kind of disorientation and I express that to you and I, I describe how difficult it is and I describe what I'm feeling and you say to me, you know, you should just get over it, that doesn't, that's not a big deal or you're dismissive in some other way, that can actually make my experience of disorientation different. It might make me think I shouldn't be experiencing that thing. It might make me resistant to experiencing that sort of thing in the future. Whereas if if I say to you, I'm feeling, I'm feeling disoriented and how difficult that is, and you give me more hospitable or sort of warmer uptake, allowing me to express that experience and allowing me to communicate with you how, how that is for me, that can make me able to have that experience in a different way. It can allow me to consider it as part of my life. It can allow me to even potentially benefit from it in ways which I might not if you were just dismissive. I think that we have a responsibility as individuals to respond well to people who are disoriented. I think we have a responsibility to treat them hospitably, right, create create a situation where people can express being disoriented. And I also think that goes to the level of society and, and institutions as well. So I think that workplaces tend to, for example, not have a lot of space for people who are disoriented. If someone's experiencing grief or a serious illness, there can be a requirement that they, maybe they're allowed to take a, a short leave, maybe they don't even qualify for that sort of leave, but they're required to get back to work and sort of be back to their normal productive selves as quickly as possible. And I think that that's a problem. I think we should have institutions that are more aware of disorientations as normal parts of life and more generous and hospitable to people who are disoriented. And so I talk about how I I think that that can mean even simple things like just making space for people to continue to work while they're not feeling completely their their whole selves or while they're feeling disoriented. So, right, so that's the second sense, right? In one sense, disorientations are morally significant for the ways they can change us as moral agents, not only in bad ways, sometimes in good ways. And then the second sense is just they're morally significant because I think we have responsibilities as individuals and as societies and institutions to respond well and hospitably to people who are disoriented. Could you explain about disorientation of thinking? Yeah, for sure. So when I talk in the book about disorientation of thinking, I'm, I focus in particular on a bunch of cases that have actually interested feminists a lot already, and not just in philosophy, but in other disciplines as well. So I'm thinking about cases where we're disoriented because we come to understand the world differently all of a sudden, right? The world isn't what we thought. So things like consciousness-raising groups in the 60s and 70s were good examples of this, where people would enter a group, often mostly women would enter a group, and by hearing about other people's experiences and, and hearing people's responses to their own experiences, would come to understand things differently, right? You know, oh, I thought that was just normal for marriage, but it turns out that's that's sexism, right? Or I thought this was just, I thought I was just expected to be a, a mother. That was a requirement of women's lives, but it turns out, no, it doesn't have to be that way, and so on. 
so there are these experiences where we come to understand the world really differently. And so in the book, I talk about one big area that interests me, of course, as a professor, is thinking about feminist education and how that happens in university settings. So thinking of my own students, my own classrooms, often I see that students enter a class, say a, say a women's studies class, or uh, I teach every year a class in feminist theory, and students come in already with some interest in feminism usually, but they show up and the, the things that we talk about end up being disorienting for them, right? Learning about critical race theory and learning about queer theory and anti-colonial theory. Often they think that they were getting into something and it turns out to be different than what they expected. And it's, it's pretty common for students to express to me feeling disoriented or at least uncomfortable, right, not not totally knowing what to do with the new information that they're getting and not knowing what that will mean for their lives. And there's a whole there's a whole literature on this feminist education studies about the power of these moments of discomfort and also about how students can be resistant to feeling such discomfort and how that can work out in classrooms. But what I talk about in the book is how I think what's so powerful about these kinds of disorientations is not necessarily that students learn new facts and then come to integrate those into their understanding of the world. I think that's true, right? People learn, oh, there's implicit bias, and and that can change their understanding of the world in important ways. But I think, in fact, what's most powerful about the, the disorientations themselves is that I see students come to a kind of awareness of complexity Right, an awareness of the political complexity of the world that does more to humble them and make them less sure of what they have already assumed to be true without necessarily replacing that with new new facts or new knowledge. And so they sort of often seem to come to this feeling of, wow, the world is not what I thought it was. I can't take for granted that my assumptions about the world have been reliable all along, and and they don't. That doesn't replace those assumptions with new ones that are more reliable. It just gives them a sense of the kind of uncertainty and potential sort of instability of their of their long-standing assumptions. And so it kind of points to what information they don't yet have, rather than pointing them towards new sorts of information. So often I see, you know, students think that they were coming to become more sort of expert on what it means to be a feminist, and they leave the classroom feeling sort of less sure of themselves and less sure of um, exactly what's needed. And I, and I want to say, in some ways at least, that that kind of uncertainty can be promising, right? In a world where we're not, we don't know everything, and then certainly people from fairly privileged identities don't have all the information, Right, gaining that kind of epistemic humility and that sort of awareness of complexity can be promising. Do you think that these situations can be harnessed to contribute positively to our moral choices? Yeah, I do think that these are the kinds of situations that can be morally productive. So, like in the in the case of the feminist classroom, I think that the experience of 
coming to realize what all I don't know, right, and not knowing really how to go on, I think that can be morally productive. I think it's a bit, and it's sort of a technical point, but it's a bit of a sticky question in the book about how much we should think of these experiences as helping us make better choices, right? Because basically what I suggest is that it's more that we can come to shifts in ways of relating to things like habits and expectations, and I call these shifts the tenderizing effects of disorientation. So they we get shifted, right? Our ways of being in the world shift without it being the case that we choose differently or we choose better. And so again, you know, there's been a lot of focus in the history of philosophy on moral development as involving the development of better moral decision-making or better moral choices and more decisive right action. And all of that makes sense because we do, in fact, make moral choices and moral decisions are an important part of moral life. But what I suggest in the book is that the way that disorientations seem to work is is often more that they sort of throw up our ways of being in the world and they, they shift our ways of relating to other people, to our own practices, our own habits, our own expectations, and so on. And those shifts in relating can be positive, right? They can change the ways that we are in the world in positive ways, even when they don't ever, right, even when these disorientations don't ever help make us better moral decision makers or better choosers. So, yes, so the short answer is yes, I think that it can be morally productive, but not always or necessarily in the form of making us better moral decision makers. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking with Assistant Professor Amy Harbin about disorientation and moral life. What is the importance of moral improvement? This is such a great question, I think, because I think that there has been a focus or a sort of assumption throughout ethics, right? If anyone is a professor of ethics or teaches ethics or studies ethics, it's sort of taken for granted that moral improvement is needed, right? Like that there's bad and we need to be better, people are harmed, and we need to stop harming, and so it's just sort of taken for granted that, of course, we need moral improvement. But I love the invitation to think more about what exactly is needed in terms of moral improvement or why it's needed. One of the things that makes me think about is that it seems to me that we, individuals and communities, are often doing a really bad job of seeing the supports that individuals need, and in fact, we seem to see many individuals, and again, I'm you know, living in the U.S. context, I certainly see that here, I'm sure it's true everywhere, perhaps to a lesser degree, some other places, but we tend to see some people as deserving of support, right? Some people deserve access to good education and health care and clean water and um, safe housing and all of that, and then we, we tend to see other people as less deserving of support or perhaps not deserving at all people that we see as not working hard enough or not deserving the social supports and so on. And I think that, so this is just one area where I think we need moral improvement, but I certainly see here that partly that stems from decisive or decisions that people make about 
I don't want to support that person, or I haven't been supported, so why should they get any social supports, and so on. I had to work for everything I have. I think that more often than deliberate choices to not support people, what we have are really troubling, deep-seated habits and expectations and practices about who deserves support. And that goes right to us all believing, or many of us believing, that people have a responsibility to look out for ourselves, and it falls to each of us to ensure our own survival and wellness. And I see all the time the assumption that if you can't work to support yourself, you're not deserving of support. You should work hard, and that's that's what would make you deserving. This is, of course, a really troubling lie because we're all in need of support. We've all been supported in many ways. Any of us that have access to housing and health care and clean water and education and all of that don't have it because we've worked hard enough for it. We have it because we've been fortunate and lucky and seen as the ones deserving of support. And so this is one area where I think a great deal of moral improvement is needed because I think we really do need to change the expectations and habits of, of understanding who deserves support. And here I think a lot about Judith Butler's beautiful work on precarity and and it, it seems to me that yeah, this is one sort of, there's a deep-seated sense, at least in the U.S., but I think also many other places, that you have to earn earn your right to have decent life, and that's a lie. And so I think that's one area in which we we certainly need to change our expectations and habits and practices, right, to understand that, no, we all are in need of support, we've all been supported, and we all need to be part of the community that provides support to others. Do you think that there is a clear binary between negative versus positive emotions? No, this is a good this is a good question too. I think as I see it, a lot of the work in recent going back some decades now, work in in philosophy of emotions goes against this idea that there are positive and negative emotions. We do, many of us tend to continue to talk in this way, right? We assume that happiness, joy, trust, pride, many other things are positive emotions and that there are these negative emotions like anger and fear and hate and whatever, any shame, guilt, other, many other things. Um, and we, we tend to think, you know, these are the nice emotions, positive ones, and these are the not-so-nice emotions, the negative ones. When really, there, I, I think that the work where we've come in philosophy of emotions, at least, is to recognize that, no, there's not such a clear binary at all. And especially when we're thinking in terms of the moral significance of emotions, there's there's no such binary. Because consider how, for example historically or stereotypically negative emotions, so things like anger, which we might have thought, well, that's never morally appropriate, you know, you should never be angry. We now know, of course, that there are lots of lots of circumstances in which it's morally appropriate or maybe even morally required that you be angry, right? We should be outraged at incidents of violence that we see against vulnerable communities, for example, and it would be wrong to not be angry, right? So morally speaking, that historically or stereotypically negative emotion is, in fact, a responsible one to have. And the same goes the other way. Morally speaking, 
what might seem like a positive emotion, something like pride, where many times it's appropriate and good to be proud, in some cases it's actually morally bad, morally, maybe even morally reprehensible to be proud. And so here you might think of people who express pride in their, say, historically socially dominant identity and march around sort of parading that pride against others. So pride in whiteness, for example, for being white. And, you know, there have been some people who have argued that that pride, that racial pride or pride in, in whiteness might be politically important, but I think that many people agree that no, in fact, that is morally troubling, even when we would historically or stereotypically think that pride is a good thing and is, is a good thing in other circumstances, pride in this kind of dominant identity in a way that can further harm vulnerable groups, that would not be morally good. So I think when we start thinking from a moral perspective, that binary between what's positive and what's negative, really, you know, there's that, that just sort of goes out the window and you can begin to see ways in which emotions usually placed on one or the other side don't fit so cleanly on that side. And then I certainly think for disorientation, and I talk about this, that it clearly doesn't fit on either side. It, although it's been seen, again, sort of normally within philosophy as being a dangerous sort of emotion to be avoided, I don't think that it, it clearly fits one way or the other. I, it's definitely not a, a negative or exclusively negative emotion, but I also think it's, don't, it's not exclusively a positive emotion. So I think that we're moving past thinking in terms of this binary now. That's what I would say about that. Yeah, that was a good point about about anger or even assertiveness because I think if you went through life without being assertive or angry occasionally, people would really take advantage of that, wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. This comes up often when I'm teaching in, in ethics classes and we talk about Aristotle and we talk about virtues and virtues being a kind of midpoint between two vices, you know, the vice of too much and the vice of too little. Often an example that students bring up is that, you know, the virtue, there's a virtue of being sort of properly angry, angry at the right time, in the right way, for the right reasons, or assertive, as you say. And on either end of that, there is being too angry. Of course, we know people who are too angry, and that's bad. But there's also being not angry enough, where you're a pushover, and people can walk all over you, and and or not assertive enough, right? And so I think I think that's intuitive to people. And then, of course, all of that, we know that there are norms, including like gendered norms, that that suggest that, for example, women are shouldn't be assertive or aren't. Women who are perceived as assertive are, are not as liked as men who are perceived as assertive and so on. So there's all kinds of troubling norms about it. But for sure, there is such a thing as being not angry enough, not assertive enough, and being walked on. And so I think, I think that, yeah, that goes to the same point of, you know, we can't just categorize anger as always bad or guilt as always bad or shame. There's been beautiful work. Alexa Shotwell and Lisa Gunther and others have done gorgeous work on the moral relevance of shame and I think so shame too there's such a thing as being not sufficiently ashamed right even though many of us would would resist and think that shame is a negative thing but but in certain circumstances it's it may be required 
Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already discussed? Um, you know, I think that one of the things that I've been able to reflect on since writing the book is just, again, it's, it's felt like such a privilege to think about and to talk with so many people and how many people have opened up to me about their own experiences of disorientation. And I think I've, I've come to a sense that it is a very normal, very common part of everyday life. And yet we sort of treat it as it's as though it's weird to not know how to go on or that makes you that's that's sort of your fault or a failure and so this this sort of dynamic of it being so common and yet and yet us us within philosophy and also us within the world more broadly still sort of holding in mind this ideal as though our lives will be always very oriented and as though we'll always know what we're doing, we'll always be very decisive. There's a tension, and I think that the kind of hopeful point that I've, I think I've come to is there is, if we recognize how regular and how everyday these experiences are, there is a sort of tangible possibility for creating a world that is more hospitable to being disoriented, where we see disorientations as more expected and potentially not even always bad parts of, of human life. And I think that that world, if we could get to it, a sort of softer, more hospitable world towards disorientations would also be just a softer, more hospitable world overall and would be better for many of us. So so that's my hope. I think that we can, um, if we recognize how regular these experiences are, hopefully we can get to that sort of more hospitable world. Yeah, it certainly would be a better world. And what are your future study plans? I now have been working on thinking about fear and safety more since the book. That's my I've I've written a couple pieces on that, thinking about how there's a sort of longing for safety and yet it's not really clear what conditions in fact make people safer and that as this broader or part of a broader project on fear and the moral significance of fear. And again, I, I think I may have mentioned when I moved to the U.S. six years ago, and I, I sort of began thinking more about this, and I, I've been quite focused on it since then. So, I, so I'm thinking about fear in, in many sort of areas of life, but how it plays out in terms of thinking that, for example, it might be it might be beneficial to imprison a bunch of people or to have a sort of stronger police force and so on. All of that strikes me as a kind of misdirected, troubling way that people take fear, right? We think that you could actually get rid of fear by getting rid of the people you perceive as making you threatened, when in fact I think that often our perceptions of what's threatening us are wrongheaded. We're not alone in coming to those perceptions, but I think that we regularly mistake the sources of threat. So, and there have been lots of great work in philosophy in recent years about philosophy of prisons, philosophy of policing, going back to Lisa Gunther's work. She has a a great book on solitary confinement, and there have been a number of anthologies and other contributions since then. So, So I'm sort of seeing myself as working into that literature a little bit, but also trying to build from what I've said about being disoriented to what I'd like to say about fear, and I think that disorientations are always or maybe often part of experiences of fear. 
just trying to work that out now. Thanks very much for coming on the program today. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. I've been speaking with Associate Professor Amy Harbin about disorientation and moral life. This is part two of a two-part interview. Hope you've enjoyed the program and stay tuned for the fabulous Swing and Sway. Good afternoon listeners, Radical Philosophy has a brand new time slot. You can now listen live at 1.30 till 2pm on Saturdays, starting from September the 8th. This won't affect podcast listeners, you can still listen anytime. So, let's get radical about philosophy. Philosophy.